a lesson. It's to answer the question, why does he do that? Why does Jesus receive sinners? Why does he eat with them? What, what's going on here behind all of this? this? That's the point of these parables, is to answer that question. And he wants them to see that God loves sinners. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't despise them. He wants them to be found. And when they are found, there is, there is great joy in heaven. Now, last week, as I said, we studied the first two parables, the lost uh, sheep and the lost coin. And those two parables kind of lead up to the third one in the, in the chapter. And that is the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of, of the lost son. And it is probably the most memorable of all. In fact, if you, if you went to Winn-Dixie and you stopped ten people and said, name a parable of Jesus, my guess would that all ten of them, if they could name one, would either say one of two parables. They'd say the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. Those are the two most well-known parables of Jesus. and We studied the Good Samaritan a few weeks ago, and today we get to the prodigal. Now, the meaning of this parable is exactly the same as the first two. He's not teaching a new lesson. It's the same thing. He wants to show how does God feel about sinners? What is God's attitude toward rebellious sinners? But it is different in a couple of ways. The first way is the first two parables mention repentance. If you look in your Bible there, it says there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Right? Both those parables use the word repentance, but it doesn't explain what repentance is. This parable will actually go into go further into the nature of repentance. What does net repentance really look like? Secondly, the first two parables are pretty generic. There's a shepherd, there's a woman, uh, these are much more specific. The characters in this parable are easy uh, to point out. The parable is broken into three parts. The first part is about the younger son, and this, of course, is, the, is, is representing the sinner. Uh, the second part is about the father. This is, of course, representing God. And the third part is about the older brother, which represents the Pharisees. So the Pharisees who are making this complaint, they are actually a character in this story or in this uh, uh, parable. So we're going to take it in its three parts. We'll get through two of them today, uh, the younger son and the father, and then we'll go to part, uh, we'll come back next week and we'll look at the, uh, at the older son. So let's, if you got your Bibles, open there to verse 11, and let's just start reading this. This is an absolutely incredible story. I mentioned last week that Charles Dickens and, and, and Emerson both said this is the greatest short story ever written. The greatest short story ever told. It is absolutely uh, incredible. And there's so much in it, if you'll just stop and take your time, that it's just it's unbelievable. Anyway, let's read verses 11. Through, uh, we'll start with 11 and 12. And he, talking about Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. Now, there, there's the three characters. There's a father, and there's, there's two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Now, in that culture, in that society 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, there was a patriarchal and hierarchical system in place. Now, patriarchal as opposed to matriarchal, patriarchal obviously means the father. The father was at the top of the list. 
right? The father was the head of the family. Whatever, he, he made decisions. He decided who the daughters were going to marry. He, he made all the decisions for that family. That was a patriarchal system. And after that, it became a hierarchical system. In other words, the older brother, he was the one that inherited, right? He got the, the I think if you go back to Deuteronomy, the older brother would get two-thirds, uh, the next brother would get a third, and so on and, and so forth. So it was a patriarchal and a hierarchical uh, uh, system. And the way it worked was that as a son, you got your inheritance when your father died. Now, a father, if he wanted to, could go ahead before he died, and he could go ahead and, and allot to his children what they were going to get. So before he died, he could say, okay, older son, you're going to get this. Next son, you're going to get this. Next son, he could go ahead and allot everything out. That was something he could do, and many of them did that. But even if he did, they would not take possession until he died. Everybody with me? That, that's very important in this story. In other words... As they would know what was coming to them when their father did die. But they wouldn't take possession of it. Their father would actually remain in control of the assets because he, he was the head of the family. He didn't just... In fact, that would be shameful for him to give control over to his kids early because that's, that, was, that would be abrogating his responsibility as the, as the head of the family. So that, that just was not done. So he could allot it so they knew what was coming but he would remain in charge of the assets. But the younger son, that's not what he's asking for. He's not saying, Father, go ahead and tell me what I'm going to get one day. It's not that I want to know. He wants to have it now. Give it to me now. Now, in that society, what you and I need to understand is that is an outrageous and disrespectful request. That, is, that would literally be seen in that day as that younger son saying, Daddy, I wish you were dead. That's exactly how that would be viewed in that culture and in that community. That's like a younger son saying, Daddy, I, I'm ready to get out of here. I want my stuff. I don't want to be under you no more. I wish you were dead and I could get everything that's coming to me. So this is a, it's an incredibly shameful thing that this young man is doing. This is, this is the lowest in the family, the lowest in the hierarchy, basically telling his daddy, you're standing in my way just by being alive. You're, you're, you're standing in the way of what's coming to me. And again, in the social structure of that day, in that patriarchal society, this would be considered just a terrible, terrible, shameful act. Now, the father goes ahead and gives him what he wants. Now, you're going to see in a minute. That, remember, who's listening to this story? Pharisees. They're listening. And to them, this is ridiculous. You should have slapped that boy in the face for his insolence. You should have never given that boy what he wants. Yet the father does. Because, after all, it's his stuff. He can do with it uh, what he wants. So he gives him what he wants. Now, what you see right off the bat is this is God giving the sinner his freedom. Just as this son had no love, no respect for his father, the sinner has no love and respect for God. The sinner doesn't love God, doesn't respect God, doesn't care about God, doesn't want anything to do with God. Now, by the way, they're happy to take his gifts. They're happy to take the blessings of God. They just don't want any accountability to him. They don't want any responsibility to him. They don't want any relationship with him as a father. So God says, okay, and he lets the sinner go. Now, 
Let's look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, if you've got an older translation like the King James, that word reckless means prodigal. So if if you've heard about the word prodigal your whole life and didn't know what it means, it means wasteful. It means reckless. It means somebody that doesn't, you know, has no responsibility. That's what prodigal... That's why this is not about a wasteful son. This parable is about a lost son. That's why it's, it's, it's just a misnamed parable. It's not about a wasteful son. It's about a son that's dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he's found. So that's why I call it the, the lost son. Now at this point, in the eyes of his family and in the eyes of the community, he's dead. Once you've shamed your father like that and you've left... In, the, in fact, I read somewhere that in some families they would actually have a ceremony like a funeral basically representing that this, this child is dead. He's dead to them. He's gone, okay? He takes his father's property, he goes off into a far country, and he squanders it. Now, you may ask, well, how did he squander it? Did he make some bad real estate investments? Did he something like that? No, later on we get a clue. His brother says, later in the parable, he devoured your property with prostitutes. So we get an idea of what this boy does. This boy goes off into this land, he's got money, and he, he probably has got this entourage around him, and every night he's having big dinners, he's, they're drinking, they've got prostitutes. He's just wasting it. By the way, he doesn't have a job. He's not, he's not trying to put any of that money aside and invest it. It's just every night's a party, every night's a party. Every, he's not his. And you think about this, what kind of idiot, right, would take a bunch of money and just go off, don't get a job, don't in, you know it's going to end one day, right? But isn't that what every sinner does in this life? When you don't think about eternity, when you don't plan for eternity, aren't you doing the exact same thing? You're just, you're just eating it up every day, every day. It's going by, and you never think about what's coming. You know there's a payday coming. It's coming, but you just put it out of your mind. It's exactly what this young man did, didn't care. He's just living for today. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. As I was reading this, I thought, you know, that's life, isn't it? Some things in life is our fault. We make bad decisions, don't we? But there's a lot of things in life that's not our fault. We don't have anything to do with them. But see, that's what life does. It combines the things we don't have anything to do with, the things that are our fault, and it always it makes of us who we are. Yes or no? See, that's exactly what things that he could control, mistakes that he made, combined with things like a famine, brought him to the lowest of the low. But that's, that's life, right? So here he is. From a, he's gone from a wonderful home. He's got a loving father, a generous father. And he's come down to this. He's in a far country. He's destitute. He's alone. He's got nowhere to turn to. And here's the thing. He's still not ready to go home. He still is not ready to go home. By the way, this is a typical sinner, right? I'm going to come up with a plan. And we understand this, right? I'll, I'll fix it. I'll go to a psychologist. I'll get a counselor. I'll marry another wife. I'll get another job. I'll move to another place, right? I'll take drugs. I'll drink. I'll Whatever. They always come up with a plan to make me feel better. And this is what he's... He's not going home yet. he's, He's in need, but he's not ready to go home. He comes up with plan B. Look at verse 15 and 16. 
So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. Now remember, the Pharisees are listening. And they already had a low opinion of this kid, right? I mean, he, he shamed his daddy. He, he, he shamed his family. He shamed his community by doing what he did. He should have stayed there. He should have took his responsibility. He should have, he should have uh, uh, you know, been an honorable young man and, and, and done his duty. But he didn't. He just took it and went off. And so they already had a low opinion of him for what he had done. But now he goes, Jesus paints a picture of this guy as low as he can go. Because to a Jew, first of all, here he is, he's a Jew. He shamed his father. He moves away into a Gentile land. And now he's working for a Gentile and he's feeding pigs. And to Jews, pigs were unclean. So if you work with them, if you touch them, if you eat them, you're unclean. So this, everybody with me, he's painted a picture, Jesus has painted a picture of this young man that is absolutely as low as a person can go in the eyes of those Pharisees. Now what's the lesson here so far? This is a really good lesson. I've got to preach on this one day. The lesson here is that sin at its essence is rebellion against the Father. Okay? Listen, sin is not so much rebellion against God's law, but at its core, it's a rebellion against a relationship with Him. You see, where this kid started is he didn't want to be under his father. He didn't want to be accountable to his father. He didn't want to be responsible to his father. Just give me, give me those gifts, give me those blessings, and let me go and get out of here and do what I want to do. See, it was a rebellion against the role of father. Now, I understand, don't get me wrong, sin is breaking God's law. But, but what brings us to that point to break God's law is first and foremost a disdain for God's will, for God's authority, for God's role as our Heavenly Father. We don't want anything to do with Him. Everybody with me? At its core, that's where sin begins. It's, to, it's, to, it's basically not to have anything to do with God. And just, like, just like that young man was saying, God, Father, I wish you were just dead. Give me what I want we basically, as, as sinners, when we do what we want to do, we're saying in our heart, I just wish God was dead. I wish He wasn't a part of this. I don't want anything to do with Him. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And then you walk out the door and you begin to break His law. So at its essence, it's a, it's a disdain for Him. It, it, it's, to, it's to go out and waste your life like this young man did in self-indulgence, to, to shun everything except what you want to do. And in the end, the sinner finds himself just like this young man finds himself in the pig slop, spiritually bankrupt, destitute, alone, and in danger of eternal death. Now let's look at verses 17 through 19. Now these are some really good verses. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And he, he plans it out. This is what I'm going to say to him. Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I want to look at a few things that he says here. First of all, Jesus said he came to himself. Do we all know what that means? We still use that phrase today. If somebody's insane, if somebody's deranged and they come back to their right mind, we use that's an English phrase we use. He came to himself, right? It means he's back in his, his right mind. See, that's exactly what rebellion against God is. 
in a sense, it's like a type of derangement or insanity. I think it's Ecclesiastes 9.3 says madness is in the heart of a man. In the sense that when you're led away by evil desires, that's almost a type of insane. It's insane. I remember the other night I was at Scooter's house watching something with Francis Chan. Y'all remember the rope thing I did one time? You remember the long white rope that represents eternity and the little piece of red at the beginning represents your time here on life and on earth? And, and Francis Chan was saying, you know, there's people in, in here that, you know, you're going to live 85, 90 years at the best probably, and, and you spend your whole life working for that 10, 15, 20 years of retirement. Remember we talked about that? And, and, and so Francis Chan says, people say to me, because I'm, not, I'm, I'm living my life for eternity, he said, they say to him, you're stupid. He says, no, you're stupid. You're crazy for, for putting your whole life into that, for that 80 years when you've got all of eternity waiting ahead of you. Well, see, it's almost, a like, it's almost a type of derangement that you can live this life and not think about eternity, not think about what's coming on the other side. So, it, so Jesus says he came to himself. And by the way, this is where repentance always begins. It begins with an honest assessment of your situation. This guy knows he's in a situation that he can't get out of. He's only got one place and one place only to turn, and that's to the Father. Now watch what he says. My Father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare. Now this is where we get a first glimpse into what kind of man this Father is. Now remember, in that day, hired servants were day laborers. Y'all remember the parable of, which one was it? It slipped my mind. Huh? Was it the talents? I don't remember now. But it was the, the, where the, the landowner went down to the market and he hired day laborers, right? And, he, and, he, and See, in that day... The day laborers, just like they do some places here in town, I'm sure they stand on a corner. And that day they would wait in the market. And they were basically unskilled laborers. They didn't have really skills and they would hire them during the harvest or they would hire them at particular times. And they really had, uh, they just were doing something temporary just to survive that day. They didn't put money aside. They were just trying to put food on the plate for that day. They really never knew what tomorrow would bring, and they weren't any in any position to to barter or to uh, negotiate with the landowner. Whatever he wanted to pay, that's kind of what they had to take. Now, watch what he says about his father. How many of my father's day laborers have bread enough and to spare? See, when this man paid his day laborers, he paid them enough that not only did they have enough bread for that day, they had enough left over. They had bread to spare because that's how generous he was even with his hired workers. So this comes into the mind of this son and he remembers, man, my dad, he's not a hard man. My dad's a good man. He's a generous man. He's a, he's a kind man. He's a merciful man. He's a forgiving man. He's not a, he's not a hard dad. That's not like him at all. And he starts to remember this. And he knows at this point, there's only one thing I need to do. I've got to humble myself before my father. I've got to admit my sin. I've got to face the shame and the humiliation of my community. See, back in that day, guys, and it's, we live in a time now where I, I don't know what happened to shame. It's just gone. There ain't no shame no more. I, I read pe what people put out. I'm like, are you, have you no shame? They don't. But in that day, shame ruled. You were kept in line because you didn't want to be shamed. 
So for this young man to come back to this community, he's got to face the shame. He's got to face the humiliation that they're going to put. But that's just part. He knows that's what I got to do. But I, I, I just got to do that, and I'll rely on my Father's mercy and forgiveness and goodness. And this is what I'm going to say to him. Father, now watch what he says. I have sinned against you. Is that what he says? No, he says, I've sinned against heaven and before you. See, guys, this is true repentance right here. He's not just coming back to the Father and saying, God, I, I, I mean, he's not coming to the Father and saying, Daddy, I, I messed up, take me back, please, I'll do anything. No, he's saying, he's saying, in my heart, I've sinned against God. I sinned in front of the Father, of my Father. I, I sinned before him, but my sin, first and foremost, was against heaven. See, this is the same language David used in Psalm 51 after David has committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and he's killed her husband Uriah and Nathan calls him on it. Uh, David says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. See, sin at its essence is always against God. We hurt other people, but at its core, we sin against God and God alone. And this young man realizes that. This, this is real repentance. This isn't just, I need to do something to get by. This is, this is true repentance. And so he says, I'm going to say this to my father. Father, make me like one of your hired servants. Now, you need to understand the culture, what he's thinking. He's thinking the way people in that culture, and by the way, this is really the way people still think today, I need to make restitution. That's what he's thinking in his mind. Hire me out. Make, give me a wage and I'll make restitution. In other words, he believes he can come back to his father and his father will show him mercy. But he does not believe, because by the way, in that culture, in that religion, there was no such thing as this. He doesn't believe he can be reconciled in the relationship without working his way back. Everybody with me? I'm going to come back and he's going to accept me because he's a good man. He's a merciful man. He's a forgiven man. But I can't be reconciled as a son unless I work my way back. I've got to make restitution. I've got to, I've got to hire myself out. Because, see, that's the Jewish way. That's, by the way, the religious way. See, religion always says you can come back and God will accept you if you do the work. Everybody with me? Do the work. Work your way in. Do penance. If you, if you earn it, you, if you earn it, he'll, he'll take you back. See, the son's got no rights. He forfeited them all. He's dead to that family, right? He took everything he got. He squandered everything. By the way, he ain't bringing anything back. He's got the clay. He don't even have shoes on his feet. He's got some clothes on his back, and that's really all he comes with. He's, he's lost everything. So you can see what he's thinking. I'm not worthy to be called a son. There's no way I can ever be put back in the family. Just give me a job, and no matter how many years it takes... I will work to earn back everything that I lost. I will, I will make restitution in my father's eyes. I don't, I don't expect to live in the home as a son. I don't even, by the way, make me as one of your hired servants. They're day laborers. Not even one of your servants in the house. I don't even expect to live in the house. I, just give me a job on a day-to-day -day basis and, and I will, I'll earn my way back like a hired man. And by the way, you can see every Pharisee head nodding. Yep. That's right. That's what you got to do. If you want to come back, you, you come on back, but you're going to endure the shame, you're going to do the penance, and you're going to do the work because that's the Pharisee way. That's the religion way. That's, that's all people in that time knew. 
make your restitution and earn your way back in. You come back, you endure the shame of your community, you endure the humiliation, you do the penance, and if you do it long enough and you stay faithful and you do all that, then God will accept you back. And that, by the way, that's all this son thought that he could expect. Now, we turn to the best part of the parable, and that is the father. Look at verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father does five things. He saw him, he felt compassion, he ran, he embraced, and he kissed. Five actions of the father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. By the way, this tells us that his father's looking. His father's not just sitting around thinking, well, he's dead to me, you know, I ain't, I ain't got nothing to do. No, every day he's looking. See, this father's a smart man. He knows his son. He knows what kind of life his son is living. He knows that money's going to run out. He knows this boy ain't responsible. This boy ain't never had a job. He, he, he knows what's going to happen. And he's just hoping and praying that that son will survive that and return to him. And that's exactly what, what happened. And when he sees him come and he feels compassion, he empathizes. That word compassion, he empathizes with his son. He, he wants to alleviate his son's suffering. So he does something absolutely incredible, and that is he ran. See, what we got to understand, in that day and time, Middle Eastern men did not run. Because to run, you had to pull up your robe and expose your legs. And to expose your legs, that wasn't done. In that culture, to expose a man's legs like that was considered shameful and humiliating. In fact, for, for centuries in Arabic versions of the Bible, they would not translate this run. They would translate it, he hurried or he hastened. Because in that culture, they knew the Father represented God. So translators would not humiliate God in that way. So they would translate it, he hastened, because they knew anybody that read that would understand that by him hiking up his robe to run, that he, would sh he was shaming himself. He was humiliated. So here's his father, right? And now, by the way, Pharisees are listening to this, and he runs, and everybody listening knows exactly what it means. They knew that he was shaming himself to, to do that. And by the way, why is he running? I read a couple of commentaries on this, and, and obviously he's anxious. He, he loves his son. He wants to see his son. But another explanation is, he, remember, his son's coming back to the town, and he has to endure the shame and the humiliation for what he did. And one of the commentators said one of the reasons he believes the father ran was to get to his son first. He shamed himself to actually get to his son and bear his... And, and, and so his son wouldn't have to endure that shame. By the way... Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and despised the shame. You see, that's our God, willing to shame His self to save us from shame. And that's what the Father did. He embraced Him and He kissed Him. By the way, to us, okay, well, that's just, He loves Him. But see, in that culture, everybody listening knows what that means. That's a gesture of acceptance. That's a gesture of love, forgiveness, reconciliation. And by the way, he does all that before that boy says one word. There's not a word that's come out of that boy's mouth yet. He hadn't said anything. And the father's already reconciled him. The father's already embraced him. The father's already forgiven him. You see, that's our God, folks. This is an awesome story. That's our God. He's not, he's not waiting, saying, yeah, come on back and... 
and uh, you work for a while, and I'm going to make sure that uh, you're really, tr- you know, you really mean this this repentance thing, and then I'll think about taking you back. No, no, he's not waiting for us to pay our dues. He runs and embraces and kisses and accepts and reconciles. He's not a reluctant savior at all. And I want you to notice the son's re- response and what he doesn't say. You remember early he had it all planned out, didn't he? I'm going to say to my father, and he says, The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But if you go back and compare it to verse 19, there's one thing he didn't say. He never says, make me like one of your hired servants. He leaves that out. Why? Because the son knows reconciliation's already taken place. See, he, he, there's no need for works because he's, he's, he's received grace. There's no reason to say make me like a hired servant because his father, by his very acts of embracing and hugging and kissing, the boy knows I'm reconciled. He, he knows exactly what that means in that culture. And by the way, that's all the sinner ever has to do is just come in repentance, trusting in the goodness and the mercy of God. And this, I mean, again, remember why is he telling this? Because he wants us to see this is God's attitude towards sinners. And what we see is the father joyously running to the sinner, running to that rebellious son, putting his arms around him in an act of reconciliation. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verses 22 to 24. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Now, listen, at very best, the people who are listening to this story, they would have expected, again, in that day, because this is all they knew. They don't know grace. They don't understand grace. See, this is what Jesus is trying to explain in these parables. This is what the kingdom is really like. See, at the very best, they would have expected the Father to say to the Son, Look, Son, I want to forgive you. I really do. But you, you, you got some real issues, right? So you need to, i tell you what you do. You, you, uh, it's probably not going to take a lifetime of work, but I need a year or two. I need to watch you. I need to, to make sure this repentance is real. And, and after a year or two of you being faithful and working, and then I'll, if everything works out okay, I'll, I'll take you back as a son. That's, that's the best people that in that culture would have ever expected. That would have been a... They would have looked at that father thinking, man, that guy's a great guy if he would have only done that. But instead, he, di- he gives him four things, a best robe, a ring, shoes, and a fatted calf. And by the way, to us it may not mean much, but to those people listening, they knew exactly what these things meant. They knew exactly what the implications were. And what they see by what the father does is they see that the change in the relationship is immediate. The change in the relationship is immediate. There's no penance. There's no restitution. There's no working things off. The change in relationship is immediate. I, that, that term, the best robe, we don't really get that. But see, in that day, every nobleman had a best robe. Think about it like a tuxedo. It was something you put in your closet and you wore only at the best occasions. You, you only took it out for the very best occasions. It was, it was the finest quality. This kid walks up out of a... been working in a pig slop. He doesn't even have shoes on his feet. He's absolutely filthy. 
And the father says, go get the best robe. Go get my tuxedo and put it on him. Not just any robe, the best robe. See, everybody understood, man, that's, that's something you would only do for a son. And he puts a ring on his hand. See, this would be a signet ring. This would be the ring that has the family seal, the family crest. That's a sign of authority. You, the servants don't wear that. Only, only sons wear that ring. They would have understood that. He put shoes on his feet. You see, in that day, servants may go barefoot, but not the son. Not the son. The son don't go barefoot. He gets shoes. Put those on his feet. He's not a, he's not a servant. And by the way, go feel the cat. Every family like that would have a, ca- a, a calf that they separate from the herd and they put it in a corral and they pour grain to it and they fatten him up. He doesn't go out with the rest of the herd and graze. They fat him up. They, they just pour the grain to him. And he's always ready for the, in case there's a visitor that comes in case there's something that happens where they need to have some kind of big dinner or big and feed a lot of people. They always have a fattened calf ready. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah you know that fattened calf that we've been saving? Go kill him because it's time to party. It's time to, to celebrate. Now, what's the father doing here? He's treating him like a prince. He's treating him like a son. And the message is clear to everybody's listening. Full reconciliation full authority, full rights, full honor, full respect as a son. Not as a servant, not as a maybe this will happen one day. The change is absolutely immediate. See, there's no waiting period. There's no probationary period. There's no limit on his privileges. That he's, This is full-blown sonship at the very highest level, and it comes immediately. Now, you've got to understand, to those people that are listening, this, this, they've never heard anything like this. This is completely new to them. Undeserved forgiveness? Who ever heard of that? You've you got to sacrifice something. You've got, you got to do penance. You've got to endure shame. You've got, you got to do... The, the idea that the Father would just forgive just because He wants to forgive... Undeserved sonship, undeserved salvation, undeserved honor and respect and responsibility, a fully vested son without any restitution. They've never heard of anything like this. Remember, the parables are all about people trying to teach people who think they know what the kingdom of God is like. The parables are always trying to teach this is what the kingdom of God is really like. You want to know what God is really like? Look at the Father in that story. That's what God is like. And that ought to, I mean, for you, even for you and I, that ought to elate us that we serve a God like that, that loves us that much, right? And they never heard it. Again, this just didn't happen in a religious society. But listen, that is our God. That is a picture of our Savior, and that is a picture of absolute grace. Now, we're going to come back next Sunday, and we're going to look at the older son. And I'm going to, I want to say this to you right now. And, and if you want to go back this week and, and read through this parable and meditate on this parable, I would encourage you to do that. I enjoyed this part. Everybody enjoy this part? This is a great part, right? But next Sunday is the important part. Because next Sunday is really about church people. It's about religious people. It's about people who think this parable is for somebody else. 
Let me say that again. Next Sunday is really about people who think this parable is for somebody else. It's for people who, who, who just don't see sinners the way that God sees sinners. See, the fact is most of us in this room have been in church for a long time. Most of us were sinners at one point, but we've come back to the Father. We've come back in, in repentance. But we do not want to be the older brother. We do not want to be the older brother. We do not want to be Pharisees. So even though I enjoyed teaching this one, and I think this is great, it's next Sunday that I think really turns the mirror on you and I and say, who are you? Who are you? Let's pray. Father, 